This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Amen. Welcome, Elevate, to the best night of the week. So glad y'all are here tonight. We are kicking off our new series called Bricks and Mortar. And we are going to look at the tenets, the foundation, the pillars of the Christian faith. And if you didn't know already, we're specifically going to be comparing the Christian faith against a very current adversary to our faith that is becoming massively popular right now. And we'll get to that in a minute. There's a woman who came to our church recently. Maybe some of you have heard of her or even came to the women's conference. Her name is Elisa Childers. Anybody? Elisa Childers, you know who that is? Fantastic. If you came to the conference, then you know her story a little bit. She grew up in the church. She was a part of a very popular Christian band back in the late 90s called Zoe Girl. And one day, her pastor pulled her aside and said, I would love for you to be a part of a Bible study. I feel like you have a a way of thinking through things and and grasping onto things. You love digging deeper into God's Word, and so I want you to be a part of a, a very exclusive Bible study that we're doing now. And in the opening night of that Bible study, the pastor opened with this question. How many of you, and he looks at all of them, believe that the Bible is God's word. And at least it says that her and one other woman were kind of like, raised their hands. And then he said, well, why? Why do you think that it's God's word? And they didn't really have a whole lot of an answer. Does the Bible have final say in the world and in your life? Other religions claim that their scriptures are sacred that theirs is the only way? Why Christianity? Why the Bible? If you are in her shoes, if you are sitting in that Bible study, how would you answer some of those questions? Do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? And why? Because at the time, she didn't really have any answers. She just had the faith that she just kind of always grew up with and what was always taught to her, but there wasn't a lot of foundation of why. The Quran says that Jesus wasn't crucified. The Bible says he was crucified. One is right, one is wrong. We can't have both. They don't coincide. They don't play well in the same sandbox. So either the Quran is wrong, which that's a crippling blow against the Islam book, or the Bible is wrong, and it's a crippling blow against Christianity. All faiths are not made equal. They don't actually play well together. So she had a crisis of faith. She tells a story of rocking her newborn to sleep in the dark and she's singing hymns and she's not even sure if there's a God to hear her. So she begins to deconstruct her faith. And as this class kept going on and on and on, that's what this pastor kept doing is he kept challenging everything they believed and trying to dismantle all of the traditional values and beliefs that she had. 
And so Elisa came to the conclusion. She's very analytical. She's very cerebral. She came to the conclusion, okay, if I'm going to reject Christianity, I'm not going to reject the Christianity of my parents. I'm not going to reject the Christianity of this pastor. I want to know what is historical Christianity. What is the orthodox Christianity that has stood the test of time? And if I'm going to reject this faith, I'm going to reject that one. I want to reject Christianity at its root. So she went searching to find out what is true. She was a part of, unbeknownst to her, a church that considered itself a progressive church. And one of the core values of progressive Christianity, if you could attach Christianity to it, is that you question everything. You look to disassemble and deconstruct everything that you may have been taught before. So she looked at historic Christianity, because if there's something true about history, it's that there's no fuzzy my truth when it comes to history. There is what happened or what didn't happen. Let's turn, if you have your Bibles tonight, you can turn to Ephesians 4, verse 11, or it's going to be up on the screen for you. This is Paul, and he's writing about God's work in his church. He says that God gave different offices, different roles in the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds. That's where the word pastors comes from. Pastors and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, adulthood, womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Do you see the comparison there? That we're growing up into a mature adulthood so that we'll no longer be children? What is it like to be a children? A child of the faith. An infant Christian. They are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, growing into Christ. Now, that's a whole lot of scripture, and we could take a lot of time to dissect this. But here's a few high points that I want you to catch. If you looked at all of those roles, pastors and apostles, evangelists and prophets, they all have a common purpose. They all have a message. No matter the difference of role, the difference of office, all of them have one job, and that is to proclaim a message. For the purpose of, what does it say? Building up the body of Christ... And that we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. Or else what will happen? We'll be carried away by the wind of every doctrine that comes into the church. Everyone that comes and challenges our faith, everyone that slips in just a little bit of untruth into what is taught, we'll just buy it easily. And so you have these roles that are meant to equip the men and women of God to recognize those false doctrines, to recognize diluting the Christian gospel. 
Let's not be carried away by every wind of doctrine. Elisa Childers was sitting in a class and this pastor was blowing a wind of doctrine. And she was easily frustrated, easily confused. And so she has this life mission to go back and test her faith so that she could reconstruct her Christian stances. There is a dangerously pervasive heresy sweeping through the Christian churches today. And it began about 15 to 20 years ago where it was really subtle. It was under the surface and it was called the emergent church. Most of the time it was really quiet. It was like a cancer kind of under the surface, affecting and infecting from the inside. But now that we're in 2022, progressive Christianity is not just widespread, but it is making a push to become mainstream Christianity. And it is a cancer. It's no longer undercover. Elijah last week spoke about a man named Athanasius. And he spent his entire life fighting the heresy of Arianism. Arianism would said that Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was the first creation from God. And you might think that that's real subtle. It doesn't make a huge difference. But as soon as you remove Jesus' pre-incarnate, eternal deity, you immediately make our salvation worthless. Because only God could endure the full wrath of God for sin. Only God could live an absolute perfect life to tip the scale so that we could stand in perfect righteousness with the Father, with God himself. And so Arianism had to be fought. It had to be spoken out against. God's people had to be taught so they wouldn't be blown and swayed with every wind of doctrine. And that's why we're going to spend the next seven weeks discussing what is the core Christian doctrine. So that my hope is that every time you hear a watered-down gospel, every time you hear something that is off-kilter just a little bit, immediately you're going to have a light bulb and a red flag go off. You're going to go, that, right there, I'm not buying that. That is some sort of crafty salesmanship, but it's not Christianity. Elijah talked last week about Jude and how God spoke through Jude that we are to contend, fight, wrestle for the faith. He did an awesome job. And if we stand for authentic Christianity, it's not going to make us trendy. It's certainly not going to make us popular. In fact, there's a really good chance that we're going to be persecuted, especially over the next coming decade, for standing for Christianity, for standing for authentic, historical, orthodox Christianity. Where did progressive Christianity come from? So if you rewound 120, 140 years, back to the late 1800s, you had this big new, quote-unquote, scientific breakthrough. The scientific theories of evolution were sweeping the countries. And the Christian church had to figure out, what are we going to do with this new big theory from Darwin? How are we going to respond to this? How are we going to handle this? And so the Christian church, many of them, decided they were going to give just a little bit. What we'll do is we'll try to meet them halfway. We'll, we'll doctor our doctrine. We'll give just a little bit of ground so that we can still stay relevant. So that we're not offensive. So that people will still come to our churches that maybe are buying into evolution. 
But the thing about every false doctrine, every heresy, is that it doesn't want to find peace. It doesn't want just a little bit of ground. It wants a full surrender of orthodox faith. And so the Christian church had to respond to this, and it dealt with what was called liberal Christianity at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. And it created modernism. The Christian, not just Christian, the culture at large, America and other countries, became modern. Everything had to be tested against scientific principles. Everything had to be objective. We didn't, they didn't believe anything unless you could prove it. Show me the evidence was the modern thought. But now, everything pushed so hard into modernism that just like a pendulum, you seem to swing back the other way. Everything was all about modernism. And then as we come to the late 1900s and early 2000s, modernism swang back to the other side into postmodernism. And where everything had to be proven objectively by science, now postmodernism says that what is reality is through my personal experience, my subjective reality. That's your truth, and I have my truth. That's postmodernism. And with the surging tide of the LGBTQ plus movement, the church is now having to respond again. This, is a, this huge tide is sweeping the nation. There's no pushing back anymore. And the church has to decide, are we going to try to give a little ground so that we can try to make peace and keep people happy and not be offensive? And then maybe we can find peace on some middle ground. But I can tell you that this sexual revolution that is coming with this movement does not want to find peace with Orthodox Christianity. It wants a full and total surrender. It wants Christian churches all over the United States not just to accept it, but they want us to celebrate it. No, heresy is never looking to find middle ground. It is always looking for complete concession from the Christian church. And so what we're looking at right now around the United States and around the world is the church dealing with this postmodernistic sweep of liberal, progressive Christianity. And we have to figure out how we're going to respond. And you can look out there to see how many churches are. What is progressive Christianity? If you go to progressivechristianity.org, you can find the eight tenets of their faith, which is kind of funny because they sort of pride themselves on not having tenets. But this gives us a great idea of what we're looking at. Number one, They believe that following the path and teachings of Jesus can lead to an awareness and experience of the sacred and the oneness and unity of life. I think I abbreviated that a little bit, but I think you get the idea. The sacredness, the oneness, and the unity of life. So Jesus is an option for unity and oneness and sacredness. Number two, they affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience the sacredness and oneness of life that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom in our spiritual journey. So the Bible and Jesus is no longer the end. It is just one. So you understand why it's strange to attach Christianity to this movement. Because the first thing they do is say, well, Christ is a good idea. 
The Bible is a source. Number three, they seek community that is inclusive of all people, including but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, women and men, those of all sexual orientations and gender identities, those of all classes and abilities. If you were to say there's one tenet of the progressive church, it is an idea of a universal brotherhood under a God who is a universal father. They probably wouldn't say brotherhood because that may offend some gender identities. But you get the idea. And just as a side note, I will digress for a moment. The Holy Spirit gives John a vision of heaven in Revelation. And John glimpses the throne room. And the throne room of God, of who has been gathered as his people, is wildly inclusive. There is every nation, there is every culture, there is every tongue, there is every race around the throne of God celebrating him as Lord. But Christianity is also exclusive. That those who are at the throne are those who have recognized Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Number four, they know that the best way to behave towards one another is the fullest expression of what we believe. That's interesting. I'd love to dissect that a little bit. They find grace in search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning than in absolutes. It is a badge of honor in the progressive church that you doubt everything. The only sin in progressive Christianity is the sin of certainty. If you take a stand and say, this is true, you're immediately the outcast. This right here, this is what Jesus says, I can stand on this. Well, I wouldn't, uh, that's your truth. What's so crazy about progressive Christianity is you're supposed to live in doubt constantly, but you're never allowed to arrive anywhere. Deconstruct, deconstruct, deconstruct. Test everything, doubt everything. But then what's left is just a puddle. There's no reconstruct. Most people, most Christians that step into progressive Christianity step out of the church altogether. It's just an exit. Number six, they strive for peace and justice among all people. I like that. They strive to protect and restore the integrity of the earth. I like that too. I don't really care for, you know, save eagles, kill the babies. Number eight, commit to a path of lifelong learning, compassion, and selfless love. I like that one too. On the surface, this looks pretty similar to Christianity. But it's notably more accessible, more likable, maybe more accepting, and more palatable version of the Christian faith. It kind of makes it attractive. Yeah, I could, I could you might consider yourself, I could, I could buy into some of that. But we absolutely have to learn to begin to listen to the messages, to read between the lines of what they're saying, to look for those little clues. One of the biggest things that they do is they change the meaning of words. It's so subtle. We can be talking about the holiness of God and God calling us to a life of holiness and they mean something entirely different by the word holy than I mean, than you mean. It's so cancerous. We have to have a standard for spotting clues 
to the purposes, the messages, and their standards. Is progressive Christianity just another version of Christianity? Is it a valid option for Christians? Let's start here. How does progressive Christianity view Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the divine Son of God who is worthy of all worship as God, who is the only way to redemption and salvation? Or is Jesus a moral example for us to follow? A spiritual big brother who sets a pattern for us to walk in his footsteps? What about salvation? Does salvation come through God's break or God's grace, or does it come through moralism? Of do these things right, live this way and be this way, and then maybe you'll arrive and achieve something. What is their view of man, of who we are? What is our identity? What is our purpose? Where are we going? Are people essentially evil at heart, or are they essentially good? You know, one of the things about progressive Christianity is you'll almost never hear a sermon where they use the word sin or the wrath of God. Do you know the song Christ Alone? In Christ alone, my cornerstone. Well, there's a great line in there that talks about the wrath of God was satisfied at the cross. And whenever they made their hymnal, churches all over the United States remade a hymnal and they petitioned the copyright to change the line, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified because they didn't want to talk about God's wrath. And when the writers said, nope, we're not changing that line, 10,000 churches rejected the song. That's how widespread this is. You're not going to hear the word sin or God's justice in a progressive church. What is life about? Is life about a current life, an eternal life of worshiping God? Or is life all about self and the betterment of me? If we start looking at progressive Christianity, if we pull back the rug to see what's underneath, it starts looking really, really sick. Really, really infectious. I don't know if this is a dumb example, but it helps me. So buckle up. If you don't like it, throw it out and just tune in again here in a few minutes. Let's pretend that you're on a team and your goal is to fulfill some mission. Your team is broken into three groups, and each group is going to go successively, having to finish what the group before them did. Are you following me so far? So the first group will go in. They'll begin a project. Group two will go in. They'll continue the project. Group three has to finish a project. Are we on the same page? So group one goes in and they see an Olympic-sized pool. Deep, big. And they're told that over the pool there's hanging a red flag and the goal is to reach the red flag, to take hold of it. So they jump into the pool and they look underneath and they see all over the pool floor are these huge stones. And so the team members swim down to them and they begin to try to move them. The idea is that they'll start stacking the stones to create a platform in the middle of the pool to stand on and reach the flag. Are you still with me? So they start sliding the stones, holding their breath one at a time, and one of the stones begins to crack. 
It's not that solid. They swim to another one, and they find that this one, as they move it, it starts disintegrating because it's just soft clay. So they begin to have to test one stone after another stone after another stone before they move it. And with great labor, they start building the foundation of a platform. Group two goes in. And swimming down, they see what the first group has begun. And they begin to stack more stones, testing every stone along the way. And they built it up to the point that by the time you step in, you're able to swim out to the platform that those ahead of you have laid, and you're able to even to climb up, and your head is above water. You don't have to tread water the way those that came before you did. And now you look down, and you have a decision to make. Maybe, maybe some of us would say, is this the best, most secure platform possible? We might swim down and test the stones and make sure that they're not going to fragment. They're not going to crack or disintegrate. Or maybe you'll stand on top of the platform and say, I don't like the way this platform looks. This particular one, I don't like that one. And you bend under and you push this stone off. Nope, not for me. And you assess it and you're like, hmm, I don't like the way this part of the platform looks. And you push that one off. And soon, after you start taking apart stone after stone, you're now treading water. The focus has changed from the structure, or to the structure, from the goal. Does anyone see where I'm going yet? Is this helping at all? You see, those who have gone before us in our faith have laid a firm foundation. And the whole point of the foundation was looking upward, to know God, to reach God, to be saved through an accurate understanding of what he's revealed. Many times we will swim out to the platform and we'll say, our focus becomes more about the platform than it does the goal of God. And there is absolutely everything right about testing out those stones for yourself. But maybe this is the difference between progressive Christianity and what I would encourage you to do as young Christians. I challenge you, go and test your faith. Go through scripture. Pour yourself into it. Why do we believe the things that we believe? And it's a different mindset than doubting everything and beginning at, I don't like the way this fits me personally. So I'm going to remake it to fit me. Are you following me in my example? This series is called Bricks and Mortar because we're going to study what are the tenets of true Christianity. So that everything that doesn't fit will immediately recognize. Elevate. Go test your faith. Know why you believe what you believe. Ask hard questions. Progressive Christianity is really, really attractive. It's attractive because it sheds obligations to a sovereign God that has expectations of us. Progressive Christianity allows us to rebuild what we believe about our faith or rebuild how we see God tailor fit for me so that whatever lifestyle I want, whatever sin I want, all I have to do is rationalize it to myself and I recreate little g God to fit that. See how dangerous that is? And now everyone gets to have their own faith that allows them to do and live however they want. There's no objective standard. There's no actual truth to live up to anymore. 
You get to create a projection of God who is just as tolerant as we imagine ourselves to be. And that's one of their, that's one of their speeches, is that we're all just little gods. It's like you, you grab universalism and pantheism and panentheism, which is a whole new thing that I'm just now learning about, and you grab Hinduism and you grab Buddhism and you jam them all together into Christianity, and it's like Christianity just falls to the wayside. You get to look at scripture and you say things like, oh, I really don't think that's what Paul meant. I, this, this part of scripture, this isn't my truth. That may be true for others, but it's not really true for me. This part of the Bible, that's not relevant anymore. Actually, what I think this means, all those statements make me the standard that I get to decide instead of there being an external standard that holds me accountable. 2 Peter 3.16 says that the ignorant and unstable twist Scripture to their own destruction. And that's what we see happening. Let's not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Have you all heard the illustration about counterfeit money? There's a thousand ways that you could counterfeit a $100 bill. There's a thousand little details that could be just a little bit off. And supposedly, I've only ever heard this, but supposedly what the U.S. Treasury does to train people how to spot counterfeit money is not train them the thousand different ways that a $100 bill could be wrong. They train them exactly what makes a $100 bill perfect. And everything different from that standard is obviously counterfeit. We're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at our faith. This is Christian faith. And so whether it's progressive Christianity, whether it's some other thing that surfaces in the next 10 years, 50 years, Gnosticism, which is for some reason making a comeback, you'll immediately go, huh, I know that's not right. I see that it's not the perfect. We're going to study Christian doctrine. And doctrine is kind of a scary word, right? Let me, let me redefine doctrine for you in a not scary way. Everything about Christianity came about because of an event. The apostles of Jesus, Paul, all those disciples that saw Jesus alive and testified to seeing him alive, they didn't build Christianity to teach a string of moral principles. No. Christianity was founded because an event, a real historical event happened. Jesus died, and mind-bogglingly so, Jesus raised from the dead. And under torture and death, they did not recant that truth. Only one had to confess that they made it up. It's not, Christianity isn't a series of morality. Christianity is a testifying of an event that happened. Now, if an event happened, that event had meaning. The event was Jesus died and rose again. The meaning is that he died for me. That he saved us from our sin. That he was the substitute for us under the wrath of God so that we could be made holy. That his righteousness would be laid over us. So you have an event and you have the meaning of that event. That's doctrine. That's Christian doctrine. That's what scripture does. It testifies to an event 
And it explains the meaning of that event. That's it. There's nothing scary about doctrine. It's about accurately understanding why God did what he did and how he did what he did. So there's the event. There's the meaning. The message was preached. That message being preached was the Christian faith. And our faith gives us purpose and a certain lifestyle. So we have certain building blocks of our faith. Excuse me one moment. Yay. Man, I wish I was bringing dinner out. Wouldn't that be awesome? All right. This is so simple. There is nothing interesting under here. I'm just going to let you know that ahead of time. Don't get your hopes up. But these are the next seven weeks. All right, let's begin. Oh, cool. All right, so, where are we at? Ooh, good. We're going to begin with the doctrine of Scripture. Can you all read that, if I put that there? There we go. The doctrine of Scripture. It's foundational. The first thing the progressive church tries to do is say, you have to doubt Scripture. The Bible is no longer an authority. And as soon as you throw out Scripture, you've thrown out God's spoken self-revelation, and everything else crumbles. So we're going to learn about Scripture. Secondly, we're going to learn about the doctrine of God. Who is God? Why is this important? Because if we don't get this right, then nothing else is right. Then we'll look at... The doctrine of Jesus. If Jesus is just a man who is a really, really good example, the best of humanity, we are still in our sins and we're going to hell. We have to know who Jesus is. The doctrine of man. If man is essentially really, really good that goodness, that deep gem of who we are is just buried under sin and under pain and under hurts. And we have to like dig down, but you find this little gem and everybody's good on the inside. Then we didn't need a savior. Who follow me? We have to get this right. Then the doctrine of the cross. What happened at the cross? Was it just that Jesus was an example of selflessness? Was it just that he loved us a whole lot? Or did he die my death that I deserved? We have to get this right. And the resurrection. It's not going to have them on an angle here. Does the resurrection only mean that Jesus was resurrected spiritually, metaphorically? Or was he resurrected bodily? Because if he wasn't resurrected bodily, then we have no hope after death. We have to get this right. And finally, if all of these are true, then my salvation is possible. Hey, look, it makes a cross. We have to understand salvation. Am I saved because of Hail Marys? Am I saved because of doing a whole bunch of good stuff? Am I saved because of how I treat my neighbor? 
Am I saved by grace through faith because of what Jesus did on the cross? We have to get this right. And so these are the bricks and mortar of our faith. Let's say you're a kid and you want to open up a lemonade stand. What do you need? need Lemons, maybe water, sugar, a pitcher, cups, right? There's a pretty basic recipe for lemonade. But let's say you thought to yourself, you know what would be fun is if I swapped out sugar for baking soda. Golden idea. Or salt. Man. It'd be like a margarita. We're just going to, it's going to be amazing. No, no, what if, here's a more fun idea. Let's leave the sugar. Let's swap out lemons for pineapples. Or apples. Or orange juice. You see, you may have something that's tasty, but if you change a single ingredient, you no longer have lemonade. If we change any one of our tenets of our faith, any one of these doctrines, if you remove it, you no longer have Christianity. You're allowed to believe whatever you want. It's a free country. But if we take one of those away, it's no longer Christianity. You don't have to believe that Jesus rose from the grave bodily, but stop calling yourself a Christian. You don't have to believe that Scripture is authoritative and infallible, but that's part of our Christian faith. So for the next seven weeks, this is what we're going to tear into. And I would like to close the story. Forgive me that I'm going to read it. I didn't want to memorize it. But I thought it brought a lot of weight to what we're talking about. This is an article uh, written in 2020, and it's titled, Progressive Christianity, Even Shallower Than the Evangelical Faith I Left. I thought that was a really engaging title. I was a hashtag ex-evangelical who left the faith of my youth for progressive Christianity. Then I returned. Here's my hashtag re-evangelical story. Now, I've grabbed some excerpts to keep it shorter. The Christian tradition I grew up in, for all the wonderful things it gave me, was not prepared for a generation of kids with access to high-speed internet. The answers given in church seemed shallow compared to the legitimate critiques that were a Google search or a YouTube video away. Questions about scripture, politics, ethics, suffering, all laid the foundation for me to explore progressive Christianity. I read Rob Bell's books. I read Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz. And I still remember the paragraph from Blue Like Jazz that opened me up to a world of grace I hadn't before experienced, but also to a world freed from orthodox doctrine. The views I encountered were thrilling. Science did not have to be discarded because of the Bible. When prayer felt like a coin toss, mysticism provided a new way to encounter the divine. I found people who understood what it was like to deconstruct your faith and rebuild it from scratch. Wokeness was the new morality. There was conveniently no personal God to place demands on your life in any meaningful way. In this progressive Christianity, Elizabeth Gilbert's trope is the only thing left. God dwells within you as you. Yikes. Did anybody else flinch with me? God dwells within you as you. 
There's no way to distinguish between ourselves and God. In this paradigm, we are God. But then I ran into a problem. As I kept listening and reading, I realized I didn't have the tools to rebuild. And I wasn't receiving any from these voices. Every belief I held had been neatly disassembled and laid bare on the floor for examination. Do you hear the the stone platform being taken apart? But there was no guidance for putting something back together. Helping people deconstruct their faith without also helping them put it back together again is lazy, irresponsible, dangerous, and isolating. Mark Sayers describes the progressive vision of the world as the kingdom without the king. We want all God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without his justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners without God. A few months later, two things happened simultaneously. I began formal theological education, and in a tragic accident, I lost the grandfather who raised me. This death plunged me into a season of intense suffering, but in a theologically rigorous environment. One of my teachers said, we do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. I was doing my theology and standing on it in the dark. For the first time, I really learned the doctrines of the Trinity and of Scripture as a unified story and how to read it as inspired literature. I was taught how doctrines that I assumed were contradictory, like penal substitution and Christus Victor, actually need each other to form the full, beautiful biblical picture. From there, the wide and rich world of historic Christian orthodoxy swung open for me to explore. Here's my petition to pastors. It's twofold. As Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Don't meet doubts or questions with concerns, with harshness, dismissiveness, or shallow answers. Be patient with hard questions and work with your people for comprehensive, nuanced answers. Number two, teach the richness of the Christian tradition. Don't settle for feel-good platitudes as guidance for a better life. Give complicated answers to complicated questions. Show how Jesus, the most brilliant person to ever live, speaks to every aspect of life and society with compassion, love, and grace. We need more theology, nuance, grace, compassion, and understanding in our churches. Not less, but these things are made possible by orthodox doctrine, not in spite of it. There are more paths than ever before in today's world, more options for spiritual enlightenment, more curate your own beliefs, faith, but no path leads to true happiness and everlasting life except Jesus alone. Hope y'all were able to follow all that. That's so good. If you want to look into this more, I encourage you to. Study it out for yourself. Here's a point of direction. What are the most important aspects for us to understand about who God is? Then, ask yourself, what are the most important aspects of who mankind is? And what are the implications of those two truths? Look them up. Recap. Paul challenges believers to be theologically fortified against false doctrines. 
Stability in the faith comes from consistent teaching of Scripture, which develops a taste for undiluted truth. The current heresy infecting Christianity today is the progressive Christianity. When held up to the light of Scripture, it's easy to see that it's not Christianity at all, but a self-centered religion in aggressive opposition to Christianity. And number two, the recipe for orthodox historical Christianity is the accurate understanding of the doctrines of Scripture, of God, of man, of Jesus, the cross, resurrection, and salvation itself. So here's two challenges this week. Number one, do your best to to take on that inquiry. What is most important for us to know about God? What's most important for us to know about ourselves? And what are the implications of those when they work together? And two, next week, as we jump into the first doctrine of Scripture, bring your Bible and bring your notebooks and buckle up. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for these men and women of God. Create in their lives a taste for undiluted scriptural truth so that anything that's watered down, anything that is contrary to good Christian lemonade is absolutely intolerant. Thank you, Lord. Bless their e-groups. Let us have some fun as we discuss this topic. And Lord, anoint the speakers over the next seven weeks. Help us to speak truth with clarity and with conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.